Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. God created everybody. He didn't create one people better than another. Your blood's the same as mine. Mine's the same as his. Do you know what this wonderful country is made of? It's made up of a hundred different kind of people and a hundred different ways of talking and a hundred different ways of going to church. But they're all American ways. They came to pray for peace. There was a rabbi and an archbishop and followers of other religions all gathered in the Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral to offer support to the Ukrainian faithful and to call for one thing, an end to the war. For the third year in a row, the Interfaith Food Drive is collecting donations and money in honor of the three Muslim students killed in Chapel Hill two years ago this month. There's a lot of divisiveness in the country right now, but I don't think you'll see it on a day like today. Today is not about politics. It's not about differences. It's about people coming together to help as one. Finding common ground while respecting differences is what brought these 450 college students and educators together from across the country. They're spending part of their summer vacation at this Chicago hotel, learning how to bridge the toxic divides in our society. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of the Progress Network, and I am joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of the Progress Network. And we are having a series of engaging conversations with what we hope are engaging people about the meaningful issues of our moment in time. You know, one of the first events that we had when we started the Progress Network in the late fall of 2020 was to talk about faith and dialogue and uh, the the divisions that beset us, but also the commonality, even though we, we in this case being the United States, are a diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-religious nation. And one of the people we had those conversations with was Ibu Patel, who we're now going to have another conversation with. And it strikes me that uh, we do live in this bifurcated world where conversations about faith and conversations about politics and conversations about race and conversations about gender and conversations about sports or entertainment, you name it, exist in their own silos. And maybe some of those silos are exactly as they should be, uh, but we do run the risk of a siloed view of the world where each silo is essentially non-connected to others in a way that doesn't serve the reality that we all live in multiple silos simultaneously. And religion uh, and faith, particularly in the United States, which remains an atypically, compared to a lot of the rest of the world, highly faith-based society, at least if you look at numbers of people who are engaged in some sort of faith community, as, as well as people who are very consciously not, right? There's also a very strong atheist component, uh, which is itself, I suppose, in its way, an aspect of, of a faith view of the world. These conversations I think are a way for us to try to break down some of that siloed reality and think about, okay, who are we in our daily lived reality, not just what story do we tell about the world that we're living in uh, every day in a way that may or may not incorporate the multiplicity of our own identities and, and experience. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with an individual who has been so passionately at the forefront of, of trying to get people to tell different stories and see the world through different lenses. So Emma, 
Tell us a little more about Ibu Patel. Ibu Patel is the founder and president of the largest interfaith organization in the United States, which is called Interfaith America. And uh, he also served as a former faith advisor to President Barack Obama. He's the author of several books, including Acts of Faith and Sacred Ground, uh, as well as his newest book, which we're going to talk to him about today, which is called We Need to Build Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. So we're excited to have this conversation with Ibu. So, Ibu, once again, it's really a privilege to have this conversation with you. You and I have been talking in various guises and various forums over the past 15 years, and I've watched and listened to your emergence and evolution as a profound and compelling and empathetic leader in an area of our society that gets, I think, not the attention because it's not screaming outrage from a soapbox. It's kind of the obverse of that and the antidote to that, right? It's the attempt to get people who might otherwise be on that soapbox shouting to step down, tone down, and try to communicate with each other. And initially, the organization you called the Interfaith Youth Corps, and we're focused, I believe, primarily on helping younger people who have different backgrounds, faith backgrounds in particular, get to know each other, to really confront, but not in an aggressive way, engage in the perspective of an other who they might have otherwise seen as alien and perhaps uh, hostile and threatening. And you've now renamed this uh, Interfaith America, which I know you're rebranding, if I can use that word for something that is not commercially driven. But tell us like what the evolution is of your own identity within that, what you've learned from Tell me what you've learned for the past 15 years right. and uh, what you're what you're trying to do and how that's changed going forward. Sure. So thank you, to, uh, Zach and Emma, for having me on to talk about, you know, the transition from Interfaith Youth Corps to Interfaith America and my new book, We Need to Build. I appreciate it a ton. So, you know, the United States is the most religiously diverse nation in human history and the world's first attempt at religiously diverse democracy. And we actually do this quite well. And we should acknowledge and celebrate that, right? And uh, I think one of the the, uh, examples I give in my book is, imagine if every faith-based institution in your city disappeared overnight. And this isn't just the mosques, churches, synagogues, temples, gurdwaras, as important as those are for worship and also for things like hosting AA meetings and running soup kitchens. But it's also the law schools and hospitals and preschools and social services centers, right? Something like half of American civil society is inspired by and emerges from diverse faith communities. And one of the most remarkable things about this is that when Jesuits start Georgetown, Methodists start Northwestern, Muslims start the Inner City Muslim Action Network, Jews start Brandeis, those institutions are an expression of the identity of that religious community but they serve all communities. That is a genius of our civilization, that you can express your identity in an institution that serves everybody. It allows you to kind of, it's the kind of genius of the hyphen, right? Brandeis is an expression of Jewish identity, and there are Hindu and Jain and Sikh and atheist and Muslim, et cetera, students there. And it's helping all of those communities thrive, and it's encouraging cooperation between them. The reason we are going from Interfaith Youth Corps to Interfaith America is, first of all, you know, I'm no longer 26, I'm 46, and we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the organization as kind of a formal nonprofit. I actually had the idea 25 years ago in 1998, but it's in 2002 when we got our first grant. Uh, so part of this is the evolution of the organization from you know nine voices in my head to an organization with currently a $15 million budget and a north of 50-person staff that works in everything from uh, uh, undergraduate education to health to uh, private companies to government around interfaith cooperation. And so we're just an organization with significant capacity for a nonprofit. We believe religious diversity is one of the great issues in American life, and it requires a vital civic institution uh, moving it forward, moving it towards progress. And the second thing is that America has changed. The demographics have changed. 
1990, there were 14 white Christians for every religious minority. Today, there are seven white Christians for every religious minority. That is uh, uh, data from the Public Religion Research Institute. Uh, There are about 4 million ELCA Lutherans in America. Their median age is 57. There are about 4 million Muslims in America. Their median age is 35, right? Demographically, we are shifting as a nation, and 70% of Americans say they're proud of living in a religiously diverse country. That's also PRI data. So the Judeo-Christian chapter of American life, it was really important. It was invented in the 1930s as a response to the anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism of the KKK. It did good work for a century. It's time to write the next chapter. We think that chapter is called Interfaith America, and why not name the organization the same thing as that chapter, because we see ourselves as having a principal responsibility in bringing about that new reality. So Eva, I love that you started and you start like this in your book too, with a reminder that this a great American experiment is the first time in history we've had, you know, a democracy of religious and ethnically diverse individuals all trying to treat each other as equals. And, you know, from one perspective, it's going remarkably well, like we're all, you know, still still here for the most part. Um, it hasn't, you know, the experiment hasn't blown up in our faces. And I'm wondering if you see, you know, because I feel like a lot of the the narrative focuses on right now, like cancel culture, call out culture, um, the fracturedness of American society. Do you see that as just part of a normal tension as part of this adjustment, this next chapter of moving from a Judeo-Christian nation into a nation of plurality? Or is that something particularly nasty? Or is it just like, yeah, we should expect this in such a transition? I'm not a big fan of kind of a negative frame on things. You know, I I think that human beings are mostly moved by inspiring frames, inspiring narratives that they then seek to achieve. And so, you know, I have a chapter in the book, we need to build the Trump story, the Obama story. And the Obama story was... Uh, an inspiring narrative about who we all could be together. Uh, I write about how religious traditions do this really well, right? uh, Islam has a narrative of who the human race can be. Uh, Christianity has a narrative of the kingdom of God, right? And then religious communities build institutions that attempt to move us closer to that reality. So I would much rather us be telling a positive story of possibility and then building institutions to make that a reality than to be telling a negative story. I I just don't think human beings are principally inspired by that. And and I think it begins to kind of acquire the 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 aura of inevitability. And, you know, the other thing is that there's this sense that sophistication lies with the negative people, right? The the and this was the case when I was in college in the 90s and I fell into this trap, right? The saps were the ones who were, you know, going to go be teachers and social workers and nurses. And the really smart people were the ones who criticized those people. I don't think that that's a great way to live. I don't think it's good for the human spirit. And I certainly don't think it moves the society forward. So on that, one of the things you've staked your work on is that if you bring people together and have them interact in a constructive environment around difficult issues or or issues they perceive to be difficult, right? And part of, I think, what you've been trying to say is, Maybe it's not as challenging to to interact with people whose views you think are objectionable, but turns out their moral framework may have a lot more overlap. The devil's advocate pushback to that is, in spite of the belief that if people just got to know each other better, they would find common humanity and work together, there's ample examples of people getting to know each other and and finding that they really dislike each other even more and find each other even more objectionable. So what do you do about that? So this is a little bit back to what Em and I were just talking about, right? Which is you can find, it's like Aristotle or the Quran, right? You can, you can find in the human experience, anything you want. I think a social change approach that says, let's look for the bright spots and ask how to do more of that. Let's look for the places where cooperation is most remarkable and ask, how do we do more of that? That's, that's the, that's the general approach that, that, that I would advocate and that I like. Having said that we do this really well in the United States and, 
you know, one of the examples that I, I write about and we need to build is the reality of the city of Mostar in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And the New York Times story on this begins with the, the image that when there is a fire in the Bosnian Muslim part of town, the Croat Catholic Fire Department does not respond and vice versa. And we ha- it's a city that is not in a situation of hot conflict that is entirely segregated. They have different garbage companies for different ethno-religious neighborhoods, right? It's entirely segregated along ethno-religious lines. And, and I was thinking about this as I was in Oregon a couple of summers ago, and there are wildfires all around. And I'm thinking to myself, there are people who are getting paid 30 or 35 bucks an hour, whatever it is, who are risking their lives to save mine, who totally disagree with me ideologically, who believe in God in very different ways than I do. And they're fighting fires on my behalf. And I think that's the most remarkable thing, right? Like you go to a hospital if you're sick or if something terrible happens, and there are heart surgeons who will operate on you who voted differently and they don't care how you voted. Right? And this is actually just how we do things in America. And it's not just intense things like firefighting and heart surgery. It's also how little leagues run. It's also, for the most part, how PTAs run. It's, it's the genius of our civilization. It's civic pluralism, which is that people of one identity work with people of different identities and divergent ideologies to support spaces in which our well-being all depends. PTAs, little leagues, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. I think that there is a danger of that fraying. There are more and more stories of fights at YMCAs, right? Over t-shirts that people are wearing or the news channel that's on. I think protecting our civic pluralism is about the most important thing that we can do and recognizing that that pluralism is built by particular identity communities, right? YMCA's Young Men's Christian Associations, right? Our civil society is built largely by diverse religious communities whose particular institutions serve everybody. I think that that is a remarkably important thing. And and the book we need to build is really about that. And so is the organization Interfaith America. Eva, I love all the examples that you just painted of all the different ways that people of different uh, ideologies, you know, behave together in the United States, because certainly I think that we take it for granted. So it's nice to see those concrete examples. And as far as what you're talking about as, as the danger of those fraying, what is your best advice for how we can protect those, you know, both from a lot of your book is focused on advice for activists, how to be calling people in more than calling people out. And I was also wondering about best advice if you're on the other side of that equation, right? If, if maybe you're not particularly an, an, an activist, but how we can sort of soften ourselves up and open ourselves up to expanding, you know, the circle of, of people in our, in our lives and then continuing the, you know, the project of making America better and better. So I appreciate that, Emma. So so one thing is, I, I certainly prefer calling in to calling out, but it's actually not my favorite phrase for social change mm. because it assumes that one person has all the answers, right? And like, mm. you're kind of a Yoda figure and like you are you are teaching the neophytes who haven't read the same things that you have. You are initiating them into the truth. I, I actually really dislike that, you know? <laughs> uh, um, I think the question is, how do we, how do we move forward together? And knowing that people have different ideologies, let me say that a little bit differently, right? There are different definitions of justice that are based in different identities. So a reformed Jew will have a different definition of justice around the around abortion than an Orthodox Catholic will. And I am not prepared to say that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. What is most important to me is that we have a society in which they can not only live together, not only coexist, but cooperate, can like strengthen the public library together, can build a little league together, can serve in the PTA together, right? What I call the red wheelbarrow of American society, you know, from the William Carlos Williams poem, which begins so much depends on that red wheelbarrow, right? All of these things that we take for granted that bring people from diverse identities and divergent ideologies together, Athletic leagues, public libraries, 
volunteer fire departments, those things are in danger. And so my advice is invest in that civic infrastructure, invest in that civic pluralism. Like the hero is the mom who coaches little league. The hero is uh, the dad who volunteers at the public library and thinks to himself, boy, you know, I really don't like the way that this other person I'm volunteering with voted. And yet I'm not going to stop reading to kids with this person because that's actually a really important thing. It is a really important thing that we have spaces and institutions where people of diverse identities and divergent ideologies can engage in activities that for the most part we agree on are central to our well-being as a society and where the activity itself guides the cooperative relationship as in a little league. Everybody knows what to do when they're coaching, right? Every, the, the activity itself guides the role of the relationship. So when you say invest in, what does that actually mean tangibly? It means that we should tell more people to engage in that. We should be hearing stories about that in the news, right? So, so I would be really interested in a story about the politics of the firefighters, of the people who fight fires in Arizona, California, and Oregon, and the people who vacation, the politics of the people who vacation next to the places in which wildfires are spreading out of control, and have this image of a group of people risking their lives to fight fires who have one particular religious point of view and a particular politics and ideology and the people who, you know, fly into that place for two weeks to enjoy the bike trails and, and fishing streams. Right. And to think this is actually the strength of American democracy, that we rely on each other. We work together. We cooperate across lines of disagreement. Now, let me be clear. There are limits. Okay. I'm not buying a, a brownie from the KKK bake sale you know, like I'm not interested in the Nazis, like, you know, doing a, a road cleanup, right? There are limits, but the line cannot be drawn at, let's say, 74 million voters, right? The line has to be drawn truly at the extreme edges. And we ought to celebrate, train, prepare, invest in, strengthen the civic spaces and institutions that bring people from diverse identities and diversion ideologies together. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with everything everywhere daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Ever Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. 
Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. With three major religious holidays, Ramadan, Passover, and Easter, all converging in the same week, the leaders of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community were inspired to share their holiday celebrations with those of all beliefs in interfaith dinners at mosques across the country. Inviting other faith and other spiritual uh, leanings into the space, uh, when we think about it, it's uncomfortable at times to stretch your hand across the proverbial aisle, as it were, and invite someone into your to your personal space, especially someone who doesn't look like you or may not have the same religious or spiritual leaning as you do. But at the end of the day, if we're not exemplifying and executing love, we're not going to be able to bridge and we're not going to be able to be uncomfortable in doing the work that we need to do. And that is seeing that we're actually intentionally focused on making sure that that we do have justice through compassion. Even one thing that's interesting about the, you know, 74 million voter <laughs> reference is that, you know, we all have these tendencies to see someone and, and say, okay, you voted for this person or that person. Uh, maybe you have this color skin or that color skin. You have this religion or that religion. And from those, you know, little clues, we tend to think, ah, you're this way or that way. Your politics are this way or that way. When we might be completely wrong. And you talk about this in the book, you know, that it's such a mistake to look at someone or learn one thing about someone and immediately, you know, make assumptions about how the rest of their their views are. You know, and since the United States is heading towards being a majority minority nation, um, interracial marriages are up and up and up. I was wondering what you think about that. Like, is that by nature a positive thing that's going to make it harder to make knee-jerk assumptions about other people's views and identities? Yeah. So, you know, I write about this a lot in the book. I write a lot about uh, what I call the challenge of creating an identity politics, so to speak, which is to say the tendency of assigning our favored politics to our preferred groups, Right. When actually the data shows us pretty clearly that 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 is not true, right? For the most part, Hispanics do not like the term Latinx. Whatever theory you might be reading in your graduate seminar, 25% of Latinos, Latinas, Hispanics have heard the term and only 3% prefer it. So what is it? truly polite as to call people what they prefer to be called, right? That is an excellent example, I think, of assigning your favorite politics, or in this case, you know, a linguistic descriptor to your preferred group. I talk about this also as as the kind of Russian dolls model of, of identity politics, which is knowing somebody's outer identity, race or gender or sexuality, and assuming from there that their aesthetic preferences, their politics, who they voted for, their views on the police, et cetera, they all are this kind of set of mirrors of what you think their the outer doll is. I think that's a mistake. Um, uh, I think that that not only is it kind of a strategic mistake, right? Uh, like don't, if, if you're recruiting voters for a candidate, you should probably call them what they want to be called or they're going to be turned off. I think it's kind of a violation of personal dignity. It's a violation of personal dignity. And I think it is a real problem when it comes to how we think about identity. And I think identity is really important. I think it, you know, I, I started an organization based on identity and diversity. But to assume that because somebody is Muslim, you know who they voted for, you're likely to be to get into trouble around that. The second thing you're you're saying, Emma, which I think is a really interesting question, of course, is is um, what does majority minority mean? What happens in a world of you know uh, mixed races and interfaith marriages, et cetera? So I've got two kids. I've got a, a an almost fifteen year old and a twelve year old. Between you know they're like twenty best friends. You know between them, I would say sixteen of them are mixed race. And if you were to line the twenty of them up. You couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell a skin color difference between the Greek kid and the Palestinian Mexican kids, mm. right? And I don't know if you can't tell who's kind of darker skin from 20 feet away, 
who counts as a person of color, right? And by the way, the term person of color, if you think of it globally, that's like 80% of the world. I'm just not sure how useful a category that includes 80% of the world, half of which nations have been to war with each other, right? China and India, India and Pakistan, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And I'm just using like, you know, examples from the region that my heritage is from. I am not sure what useful or coherent can be said about that. And just in the United States alone, right? First of all, I don't know why we would erase the rest of the world in coming up with our categories, like people of color. That that does not seem like a good idea to me. And I know I'm speaking to somebody who's, you know, uh, in Greece at the time, right? You're like, yes, we exist too. The second thing is in the United States alone, the highest earning ethnic group in the United States are Indian Americans, people of color, quote unquote, right? The lowest earning income ethnic group in the United States, Somali Americans, people of color. Somebody tell me what a family that makes $125,000 a year, median income of an Indian American family, at least a couple couple years ago, and a family that makes $35,000 a year, Somali American median income, what those two families are likely to have in common. Are they likely to live in the same neighborhoods, use the same transportation, go to the same school, have the same education level, have the same prospects for their kids? I mean, kind of in what world are we assuming that they have the same experience at all? So, so much of what you're saying is so manifestly true on a lived level. Uh, and, and some of this is also, you know, we have a narrative and, and have for a long time of, uh, two-parent families and suburban American white picket fence, even while just the sheer multiplicity of different family arrangements, can, as well as the urbanization of so many individuals, meaning, you know, home ownership is a thing, but it, it's still 40% of the country doesn't own homes, and, and many of them not because they can't, just because they don't. So we have a narrative of who we are, and then we have the reality of who we are. And maybe because the United States is both creedal and story-based, right? We are we are a country founded on a story, not on a history, not on a shared religion, ethnicity, you name it. Uh, we're very good at telling ourselves a story of who we are. The problem is how often that story is more of a platonic ideal that has very little or, or only tangential relationship to the lived reality. And you're speaking to the lived reality, right? As opposed to the story, which is a story, right? And part of the problem, though, is so much of our public discourse, whether that's what goes on in the central, i.e. federal government or even a state capital, and then the news and the, the discussion around it really doesn't include a lot of what you're talking about. You know, it's it's about Republicans and Democrats. It's about extremes versus extremes. It's about, you know, woke versus Christian America. It's about critical race theory versus traditional values. You're very much in the process of living a different reality and, and, and bringing people into that. What's your experience been of trying to get that story? You're about stories. A lot of what you've done is stories. Yeah. Get that story to sit at least in some level of juxtaposition with a completely other series of stories that dominate the conversation. Well, let's see how this book does, right? <laughs> that, that, that's why that's why I wrote this book. And this is my first podcast about this book. And I'm grateful for that. So, so, so thank you. Look, what my organization, Interfaith America, does is really three things. Number one, we tell a story in the world. We tell a story about a nation of people from different religious backgrounds from atheist to Zoroastrian who come together to number two, create civic spaces that can gather people from diverse identities and diverse ideologies. And again, I will say it again and again and again, it is the American genius. It is the heart of the beating heart of our civilization, right? The fact that we have universities started by Catholics for the purpose of advancing Midwestern Catholic boys in the middle the middle of the 19th century when Catholics were highly discriminated against that admit Muslim students. I'm telling the story of Notre Dame and my dad, you know, like that is a remarkable thing, right? I want to tell the story of a nation that takes pride in that and does it reasonably well in its civic spaces and institutions. And then to train leaders who are also storytellers and 
strengtheners and spreaders of said spaces and institutions. That's really the work of Interfaith America. And we call this, you know, speaking of story, um, another story we're trying to change is the story of America as a melting pot. We say America is much more like a potluck. It welcomes the diverse contributions of distinctive communities, right? You want people from a range of backgrounds bringing their ethnically, religiously, racially inspired dish to the common table so that the whole nation can feast. You don't want people of a single ethno-religious background all bringing the same dish, right? As much as I love biryani, I don't want an entire potluck of biryanis, <laughs> right? And I certainly don't want an entire potluck of casseroles, right? You don't want to erect barriers to people's contributions. Barriers are prejudice, bigotry, et cetera. It's a violation of their personal dignity, but it's also less dishes at the table, right? That's stupid. You don't want a giant melting machine outside the door so that it melts the biryani and the casserole and the crusty bread and the awesome dip into the same goo, right? We're a potluck nation, not a melting pot. We are interfaith America, not Judeo-Christian America. And people build the civics that we, we are the ones who tell these stories, and we are the ones who build the civic spaces and institutions, the hospitals, the little leagues, the volunteer fire departments, the colleges and universities, the social services, the preschools, et cetera, et cetera, that give life to that. I guess I'm thinking a little bit about it. It's a little bit of a repeat of, of what I said before. And also Zachary, like, how do you bring people along for the ride? The people that are like kicking and screaming about this, who don't want to move forward, you know, how do you push them past or get them over maybe some fears that they may have or, you know, cause there's a, there's a deep shadow side of the United States as well. Right. And um, we don't want to count those people out of the new future. I definitely don't want to count those people out. Right. Like I said, 74 million people who voted differently than me are not my enemy. And I think actually the great hope and story of American history is that our great heroes, right. The Jane Adams and Martin Luther King juniors of the world, part of their genius was to not be derisive or dismissive to the people they disagreed with because they knew they had to live with the people they defeated. Right? That is a remarkable insight that they had. You have to live with the people you defeat. Maybe 0.001% of them you can put in jail, right? Like the, 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 the insurrectionist of January 6th, the rest of them you got to live with right? So you might as well bring them into the circle. Look, I'm a Muslim, and this is what the prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of God be upon him, does so well, right? Like he does this, I, I end my book with the story of the prophet at Hudaybiyah, where he basically brings the people he was only a few years earlier at war with, he brings them into the circle. He brings them into the circle. So I am confident, actually, that most people at some time will be brought into the circle. Why? Again, because of the civic spaces of American life. You might have uh, um, a generalized prejudice against Muslims, and there's a reasonable chance at some point your, your world will be made a lot better by a Muslim doctor. Your life might be saved by a Muslim doctor, right? It's hard to hate your Muslim doctor. It's hard to hate your Hindu neighbor. It's hard to hate uh, the Sikh who or Baha'i who you coach Little League with. It's hard to hate your kid Zoroastrian teacher. And this is part of the genius of American civic spaces is that they are good at facilitating interaction on the kinds of activities that most of us consider part of our general well-being, right? And this is why the kind of alternative alternative dystopia of a Mostar is so scary because they have their civic spaces and institutions are only for particular groups. They don't have spaces that facilitate positive interaction. And most of our civic spaces actually do that. But I think that they're threatened, right? And we don't have a, a, a Jewish versus evangelical holy war, but we are sacralizing our ideological divide. People have a religious devotion to disliking people who vote differently. There is a sense that that um, uh, sophistication and um, 
you know, like, like somebody's like religiosity, their, their membership in a group is best measured by how much they hate the other side. There's a great line, right? We're a church held together by our hunt for heretics. Hmm. I think the goal is an ever widening circle and not an ever uglier divide. The raised fist should not be our symbol of social change. The outstretched hand should be our symbol of social change. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. He said, I used to believe in God. I said, that's good. Were you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? (laughs) He says, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region He says Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region I said me too Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912 He says Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912 I said die heretic That was comedian Emo Phillips highlighting how when we define ourselves by our differences, we can forget we share much more in common. I do love that expression of sacralizing our political divides. And it's certainly true that there is a kind of anachronistic or archaic religious division element to our current political divisions. You know, we simply swapped one intense intolerance for another Every time I speak with you, I am struck by uh, what I react to as uh, you have an incredibly positive outlook on on human nature, which I tend to think that I do, given that I created this progress network as a way of saying (laughs) there's a lot more good going on in the world. Uh, But I think on a spectrum of, of perspectives, I tend to be struck by my, hey, wait a minute, occasionally when I hear you speak as to my own acute awareness of more of the kind of the rough and tumble ugliness of human nature, which we need to in some way acknowledge and engage if we are going to then move beyond. And maybe that's a temperament, you know, meaning I am as much in the the grappling with the dark sides of who we are uh, while trying to urge us toward whatever light is manifest. But I still grapple with the, the the public part of, you know, on the one hand, I feel like we would all do better doing what you do, which is so little of our lives are actually impacted by our collective narrative of politics and the nation, right? I try to say to people all the time, exactly how much does the federal government actually 
shape your daily life, right? I mean, there are people for whom it shapes it more and there are people who for whom it shapes it less. There's a whole lot of things that we are incredibly agitated by that are much more not touching us, right? And then there's a whole lot of things that are touching us that we don't engage as much. Um, but I do struggle with the the kind of, we would do better from a better collective discourse, right? That That the idea climate in which we swim uh, can can deeply affect our lens, how we are seeing the world. I mean, I would like credit for my poetic view of the world, but really I just think this is like brass tack stuff. And here's what I mean by that, right? Like you could have been born in Ukraine, right? Like I have been to enough places. I, there are There are more leprous beggar children in India than there are top... 1% income earning people in the United States, right? There are lots and lots of terrible positions on planet earth that every single person listening to this podcast and probably every single one of our friends and associates could just as easily have been born in. And our lives are a hundred times, a thousand times better than a leprous beggar in India or a rag picker on the trash mountain outside of Nairobi or the kid in the village of Morocco, whose face is covered in flies because he's so tired of waving them off or the person living in, you know, in a, in a, a shack in Soweto, all of whom I've seen. Right. And I'm, you know, all of whom I've seen. And I, one of the things that I think our culture has done, which I just think is like, it's so terrible is we are in a conspiracy against our own agency. And I think agency is one of the most beautiful things in the world. The idea that I can take steps to improve my life and other people's lives, including vote, including, you know, be a teacher or a coach, including, uh, um, advanced policies that I want. In other words, this isn't like, I'm not, what I'm saying by this is not necessarily a conservative leaning position. It's simply saying, right. It's not like the government doesn't have any responsibility. It's we are the government, right? So you can go and run a federal agency better than it's currently being run or a state agency or a, a, a city program, right? If there's a food desert in your city, you can create a better way of getting fresh, good food to the people there. My friends at the Inner City Muslim Action Network did that uh, on the Southwest side of Chicago, right? They created this fresh food market. My friend, Jeff Pensino did that uh, in on the West side with something called Fresh Moves, a mobile, uh, a mobile grocery store uh, uh, that used old school buses as, as uh, you know, instead of brick and mortar. In other words, we have the ability through civic entrepreneurism or government engagement to make things better. And we should do that. This is not your typical city transportation. Instead of people, this bus is bearing produce. That's right. It's stocked with melons, squash, bananas, and greens. We're a healthy alternative to the ice cream truck. Fresh Moves co-founder Jeff Pinzino says if people can't buy healthy food in their neighborhoods, the fresh produce will come to them. This is actually something that I wish people would pull from religion more into American culture, even if they aren't particularly religious, which is uh, the reverse of this, like learn helplessness, right? Or you had you just phrased it really nicely about the lack of agency. You know, it, it, it's sort of the, the brass tacks of almost all religious traditions that like nothing is beyond redemption and that anybody can do the work, right, of, of being part of the tradition and, and being a, a good human being. And uh, I, I kind of wonder, too, like how um, atheists fit into this, right, into this uh, puzzle of American culture. I wonder if anyone listening to this who who is um, not particularly religious is thinking like, this is too much of a frame for me, you know, and how we can pull those people in as well. So from the jump, Interfaith Youth Corps, now Interfaith America, has always had atheists equal partners to the table from the jump. You're right. I would say like 
I don't know, at any given time, 10 to to 20% of our staff are atheists and certainly the people in our program network. You know, we talk about Interfaith America as including everybody from atheist to Zoroastrian, Sunni and Shia, uh, Orthodox and Reform, uh, highly observant and not particularly practicing, et cetera, et cetera, right? Any of us can learn from the genius of how religious traditions operate, whether you're believers or not, right? And part of the genius is this sense that there's a cosmic vision that we can all play a part in. It's the cosmic vision that we can all play a part in. And, you know, for Ramadan, I am reading uh, this great book called Muhammad, the World Changer. And, and one of the major emphases of the book is the role of the prophet Muhammad and, and the emphasis on Islam in what people can do for themselves not just in a self-help type way, but in a community advancement type way, which includes government. So for example, you know, the people of Yathrib welcome the prophet Muhammad into their city as he's being hounded, hounded and harassed out of Mecca. Yathrib becomes Medina, the city of the prophet. And, and Muhammad gets there and he realizes that you know, he's been invited in to kind of build unity amongst these clans and tribes, but they continue to squabble over stupid things like access to the well. And there's all this backbiting and gossip. And a set of revelations come down from the Quran. God will only help a people who helps themselves. And the prophet gathers this, these kind of squabbling Medinans together to build a community center that's called a masjid, Right to build a market, to establish something called the Constitution of Medina, which is a document which which affirms the individuality and diversity of the various tribes of Medina, but guarantees kind of collective impact, including mutual defense. It's a very early example of cooperation amidst diversity, of a potluck. And so this notion of what can we do to improve things? individually, as a civic community, through government, that's really important. And I think one of the great dangers of our time is this sense that my job is to tell you what you are doing wrong. It is a legitimate thing for me to raise my fist and to oppose you. And then my job is done and somebody else is going to come fix it. That is crazy, right? The other side of a dismantled system is not paradise. It is chaos. And the sense that like, uh, um, you know, person X gets to be the person saying, here are all the things that are wrong. And then person Y has got to be the person who comes in and fixes and builds. I just, you know, that's, we ask everybody to be part of the solution. <laughs> that's part of how you have a civil society. You ask everybody to be part of the solution. And nobody gets to say, well, I'm just the person who tells you what you're doing wrong. And then you can thank me and I get to go home and you fix it. And by the way, that idea of like nobody, nobody gets a free rider on our collective problems or the, the, the inability to do anything about them. Because, you know, one of the mantras I was thinking of when we created the Progress Network was uh, the future is unwritten and that we are all in the process of writing it. And that it's kind of up to each of us to write it well, as opposed to there is this preordained path and we're simply along for the ride. That ride might be terrible. That ride might be magnificent, but we're along for it. And no, you know, that we are, it's incumbent upon all of us to kind of write that future, just like it's incumbent upon all of us, as you know, we've talked about over the years to use our history well, right? There's a lot of stories in our past. Right. Uh, there's not one story in our past and which stories you elect to use says a lot about the fu- the present that we're in and the future we're creating. There's a great line by Walter Lippmann, which I quote in, in, in the book, the story that is told will determine at, at any given point how people will act. Right. Right. And so, you, you know, why would you tell a horror story? Because you know that you're scripting people to act in horrible ways. Right. Why wouldn't you tell uh, a story of possibility because it encourages people to act positively. And, you know, as Obama says in his Howard University address in 2016, is there a different time and place that you would rather have been born? Right. And this notion that, like, we are too oppressed 
to improve our own condition, the condition of others, that is a conspiracy against one's own agency. And I just think it is a, it is a, it is a crime whose victim is the leprous child in India or the Afghan who held on to the undercarriage of a plane and died that way to get here, right? You should do what you can do. You should do what you can do. And, and there's, a, you know, there's a great religious story about this um, in Islam, that, uh, uh, which might actually be in other religions also. The prophet Abraham uh, is, is in the fire. And there's an old woman who runs and gets a pail of water and throws it on the flames. And, and, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't douse the flames, right? It just like stops them burning for just a moment. And, you know, the wise man turns to the old woman and says scornfully, did you, did you think that you could, that you could throw out, that you could, you know, douse the fire with your, your lowly uh, pail of water? And the woman says, let it be known that when the prophet of God was in the fire, I did what I could. None of us, I think, are saying that, that the past and the present are not littered with atrocities <laughs> or that one should not confront the ugliness of the past and the problems of the present. It's, it's in what frame does one do so? And that's sort of the point of Obama. It's not um, to gloss over or to make light of what has been problematic and what is, it's context in which you do so. Do, do so from a perspective of both possibility and the endless human capacity to meaningfully solve problems, many of which have been produced and created by humans. And, and we're all who we, we're all where we are because other people took that approach, right? And so, you know, one of my favorite speeches by King, I think this is actually the last speech he gives, uh, Memphis, 1968, the, the, the night before he's killed, right? Um, he opens by saying, by kind of doing this tour de force of history and says, you know, I think about, uh, uh, Athens, I think about Rome. I think about when Jesus was born. I think about when Martin Luther nailed his, his 95 thesis to the diet of worms. I think about all these places and I ask, you know, what would I have wanted to have been with Lincoln when he signed the Emancipation Proclamation? What I have wanted to have been with, with Socrates uh, in Athens. And he says, actually, I'm glad that God created me now. I'm glad that I'm alive now because God is moving in the world in a special way and we get to play a role. And here's the guy who's like, you know, jailed in Birmingham, stoned in Chicago, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he is like, thank God that I've been born now because I can make a difference now. Why not? Why not have that? Why not have that attitude? That's free. That attitude is free, right? I, reading the book, I kept on being reminded too of the, the Tibetan monks uh, who have been put in jail in Tibet and, you know, tortured by their jailers. And they come out of it saying like, no, of course I love my Chinese jailers. They, you know, taught me the lesson of love. Um, but I just wanted to add really quickly to, to Zachary's point too, that for you, Ibu, we should also say this isn't just rhetorical. Like you talk about in the book that you had plenty of your own experiences with racist incidences in the United States and your childhood and past that. So you have also gone through your own personal crucible here that, um, that has helped you develop this worldview. Uh, I mean, yes. And, and I, I, you know, I wouldn't say that, I mean, I didn't come to physical harm or anything like that, but absolutely. I navigated American racism in a very delicate time in my life and really ugly ways for sure. Uh, and I'm not unique in that, you know, I'm not unique in that. Um, and nor am I preaching. Like I I'm also not, uh, the Dalai Lama. This isn't, you know, like this isn't like find the worst character in the nation and reconcile and forgive them. This is, listen, figure out a way to cooperate with people with whom you disagree within the normal framework of a diverse democracy, right? Uh, um, and, and stop attaching religious feeling and, and an idea of sophistication to, to opposing other ideologies. Create spaces where people from different backgrounds can come to know one another better and move forward together, recognizing that diversity is not just the differences you like. And I'll say that again. It's one of my best lines, right? Diversity is not just the differences you like. Or as, or as others have said, a moral principle of the first order only makes a difference when you follow it, when it's hard. Right. And the first amendment, the first amendment was not created for your favorite song. Right. right. <laughs> so Eva, thank you for having this conversation. And I want to make sure we keep having them and urge people to go and 
by your book, We Need to Build Field Notes for a Diverse Democracy. And I wish you great success with that, uh, with the relaunched, renamed, but, but still chugging Interfaith America, nay, Interfaith Youth Corps. And we'll, <laughs> we'll see what it is in 20 years, but I'm sure right. it'll be the same thing in, in its evolved guise, just like all of us. Uh, and best of luck with all that. I appreciate that. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Ebo. So, Emma, I was struck in our conversation with him, which I alluded to during it a little bit, of there are very few people who I talk to that can make me feel cynical (laughs) by comparison. And I challenge that, too, in myself as I'm listening to it, right? Like, why at times do I feel burbling up a kind of, hey, wait a minute, come on, you know, people are more touchy than that. Because it's so unfamiliar in our in the way in which we talk about the world, and the way in which we view, we being whatever collective us we have in mind, from a constant perspective and insistence on, as, as Ibu talked about in the conversation, starting from the place of, I'm just gonna insist on looking at, at who we are, what we've done and what's possible. Yeah, so it's funny that you, you felt like the cynicism bubbling up in you because I was like, yeah, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. Like I'm here for the Ibu Kool-Aid, not that he's, giving us Kool-Aid, he's giving us great stuff. But I think it's because like I myself am awash in the Buddhist tradition and they're always yapping on about how we all have fundamentally good natures. And what's funny about, you know, being awash in something, and you were alluding to this during the episode, is that that starts to creep in as just, yeah, this is how things are. And it's almost irrelevant if it's true or not, because you've decided to see the world this way. And if it's something that affects your worldview towards the positive, It's like two thumbs up, let's do it. And look, it's very hard to be immersed in public policy debates and politics in arguments over the pandemic uh, and maintain that perspective. Meaning it requires an intense amount of effort not to get drawn into the negative vortex. And, And again, from my own personal experience of being engaged in some of those debates and often being the guy saying, hey, wait a minute. You know, the joke <laughs> people have when they've read a lot of my columns and writings is like they should all be prefaced with, okay, everyone, let's take a deep breath or everybody calm down. <laughs> uh, even so, just being in those debates, being on Twitter, right? Being in this world of rapid fire angry, contentious debate, it's very hard to maintain the Igbo Buddhist Emma perspective. (laughs) Yeah, the Buddhists always talk about um, Buddhism being that you have to swim upstream, that, you know, it's it's always going to be like that. But the ready answer is like, what's the alternative? Like, if you don't want to be a part of the contentious maelstrom that is, you know, Twitter, uh, you don't want to be part of the contentious, you know, yappity yap, 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 then well, you got to choose the other way. And right. uh, it might be hard, but it's a repetitive choice, right? All the time. It's like, I mean, I'm not married, but that's what they say about marriage, right? It's you wake up and you choose to be with your partner every day. It's the same thing. You choose to be with your positive outlook every day. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing we didn't get into with Ibu as much is a lot of what he does is also actually do the work, right? It's not just talk the talk, he walks right. the walk, he convenes people, he gets people to really develop the muscles It's the same muscles from marriage, from living in a community, from living proximate to people of how do you wake up every day and acknowledge the other and acknowledge other people and their needs and their perspectives and their views, trying to see the world through their eyes. And he does a lot of that, uh, Ibu does, in in creating workshops and helping people, like really training people. We did this a little with Braver Angels and with some of John Wood's work. So there's there's a number of people we've had these conversations with who are not just articulating an ideal, they're actually trying to help people learn to live those ideals. Right. They're they're like workouts for for you (laughs) developing your ideals. I like that. I really like that analogy of you're developing the muscles because, you know, if you do a daily workout, eventually that muscle is so strong that doesn't matter that you're in the midst of you know hard policy debate or, or a twitter fight like the muscle is there for you absolutely that muscle you make it strong and you make it strong by repetition and and dedication and focus mm-hmm. 
And hopefully these conversations are part of that as well, that they are part of the mix that leads in that direction. At least that's the goal. Part of your daily idealism workout here at What Could Go Right. <laughs> that's right. So go grab a drink, towel off, join us next time. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. Thank you, Zachary. If you want to find out more information about The Progress Network and what could go right, please visit our website at theprogressnetwork.org. And if you want something other than gloom and doom when you open your email in the morning, you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's a roundup of progress news from around the world. And that's at theprogressnetwork.org slash newsletter. And please, if you like the show, if you could tell a friend, share an episode, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that would help us out a ton. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and Emma Barber Lucas. The show is produced by Andrew Stephen and edited by Jordan Aaron, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Puglomerate. Thank you so much for listening.